Hey everybody, it's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and it's a privilege to have with us today Nelson Bosch, who's an international expert in project management in complex environments. Hi Nelson. Hi there, how are you? I'm really delighted that you're here with us. So why don't you tell us about the amazing work you've been doing, what you're able to share about the role or roles that you've held. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, yeah, I, uh, it all started, uh, I guess, back in 1996 and 1997 when I was in Albania um, uh, working in an orphanage for uh, babies zero to three years old. And um, that was... I fell into that um, because I was studying in Switzerland at the time, and as one does in Switzerland, runs out of money very, very quickly, and uh, was able to uh, connect with a, um, uh, a friend of a friend who uh, was able to place me in this orphanage. And I was there for about two years, or a year, let's say a year and a half. And it was just after I left, it was at that time that the Kosovo War broke out in that mm. region. And so I had uh, uh, a conversational level of Albanian at that time. So I had an, an understanding of the context and the environment. So I thought, and arrogantly enough or naively enough, um, thought that, well, you know, my, that, uh, that experience, uh, that language skill, I'm going to be a, sh a shoe in to uh, any organization that, uh, you know, is working, any humanitarian agency that's working in that environment. Well, a year later, after sending out CVs and, uh, and the such, there were no takers. Um, and that prompted me uh, for the first time, uh, well, probably for the second time in my life where I thought, this is now what I want to do. I want to be in the humanitarian environment. And so, and I think it's something that um, maybe distinguished me from uh my colleagues is that I self-selected myself and prepared myself for this environment, for working in this environment, which 20 odd years ago was not necessarily a field of an, in and of itself. Mm. Um, so with that um, kind of understanding of, well, this is the direction and how I want to see myself um, moving forward in a career, I decided to return to school. And uh, I did that by the, uh, returning to Ontario, Canada, in a city called Waterloo, where there's two universities right across the, the street from each other. And I took, uh, I started at one at the University of Waterloo taking a development and international studies and um, as a mature student. And then quickly found out that any course that I took at one university uh, applied for my uh, prerequisites to uh, the other university and vice versa. And so I started taking a, um, a peace and conflict studies course at Wilfrid Laurier University and um, was also a, uh, a visiting scholar at Harvard University for a semester uh, where I studied uh, negotiation conflict resolution as well as uh, various other uh, programs, all supporting my undergraduate degree. So I ended up with uh, two undergraduate degrees and then um, went to the United Nations University for International Law and the Resolution of Disputes. And um, yeah, that after the, uh, the studies, yeah, it took a while. 
But then I finally landed an internship with UNHCR, the, the largest at that time, the largest refugee camps in uh, Dadaab, Kenya. Mm. About 750,000 people at that time. Wow. <clears throat> and uh, it was also uh, during that time, and a little bit prior to that, I had signed up for um, a Canadian roster for experts in, uh, in this field and was contacted in 2000, early 2005, uh, asking about my contact details and location for an interview with the UN Migration Agency for a position in Indonesia. Hmm. And of course, responded to that, uh, that email very, very quickly. Uh, nothing, heard nothing for about a week and a half, and then received an email saying, we'd like to offer you the position of operations officer uh, camp management in Sri Lanka. And so that was my uh, first formal uh, inroad into the UN system. And uh, it was the 17 years that I spent within the UN system. Wow. And my primary focus uh, when I was young and single was emergencies. And then uh, and slightly um, getting into the recovery phase of operations and bridging that gap between emergency operations and recovery. And uh, that kind of took me uh, around the world for about what, seven, seven or eight years in Sudan, um, Myanmar, Nepal. Huh. Um, it's always a difficulty remembering uh, all the different countries and different missions. But they were um, quick onset, uh, large scale, complicated um, uh, humanitarian environments. And mm. a lot of the, uh, most of the occasions, they were deep field. So uh, some of them were in the country offices. I was leading uh, clusters, at, uh, coordinating clusters at a national level, <clears throat> but most of them were deep field environments. And uh, what do you know, mean by deep field? Uh, deep field is. Um, well, there's always a relative uh, understanding of field. You know, if you're in Geneva, you say, well, I'm going to the field. I'm going on TDY to the field. It means you're going to a country office like Jakarta or, um, you know, going uh, to Nairobi, if you will, going to the field. But if you're stationed in Nairobi and you say, I'm going to the field, you're going to one of the camps, the refugee camps. And mm. when I say I'm going into the deep field, deep field uh, an example in Sudan, where we'd have these UN um, um, yeah, kind of conclaves um, and bases all throughout the country uh, because the UN DPKO mission was there at the time. And um, so you would uh, have a tent or a uh, modified shipping container um, living on a, a generator and bottled right. water and um, very limited access to, to to many things. So deep field to me uh, is when you're further separated from a, um, uh, you know, a less organized or less uh, a, a placed uh, mission. So you, um, the country offices will always be well established. Um, and then uh, the field offices will be uh, less so. And then once you leave the field offices, then you're, you got a land cruiser and um, a satellite phone in your wits. 
Right. And I always enjoyed those environments. Uh, that was my that was my cup of tea, if you will, until I got married and had kids. And that uh, can't really drag a family into uh, quick onset environments and mm. high schools. And um, so, yeah, life changed after that, and I was more stabilized in in uh, Indonesia, where I had been placed for the last uh, eight years. And responding to the emergencies that Indonesia tends to face on a uh, monthly basis, sometimes. Uh, hmm. So, where were you based in Indonesia? From 2012 to 2019. Okay, and was that in Jakarta or somewhere else? It was in Makassar and Sulawesi, where the uh -huh. uh, this morning the earthquake, uh, 7.4 earthquake hit. Um, uh, five years in Makassar, and then. In South Sulawesi, and then the rest of the time in Jakarta, mm, and deploying yeah. to emergencies from there, for example, and brief missions to PNG, Papua New Guinea, mm. to Vietnam, to floods, uh, weather events in Vietnam, and then the 2008, 2018 <clears throat> Palu uh, earthquake, tsunami, and liquefaction uh, mm. event, which was quite a uh, significant, um, one of the most significant. Um, responses that I was uh, was a part of in terms of scale and um, harm. Nelson, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned about making that transition or that shift from response to recovery. And I'm wondering about the maybe the mindset shift for someone who's used to working in those environments, being responding and then being in the recovery mode and the duration of time that that takes from responding to the immediate emergency to moving into a recovery phase. Is that a difficult shift? No, I don't think it is. Um, well, it, it, it is if one uh, chooses to silo the, the response and to break it up into parts. And mm -hmm. so uh, there, if you break it up into parts, then you're looking from the, the, the quick onset, you're immediately looking, looking at, excuse me, examining HR uh, issues. You need a lot of people on the ground very quickly. You're looking at logistics both foreign mm. and domestic, um, foreign military assets, the cooperation with foreign military assets if, uh, if required. So there's that immediate, um, um, you know, life-saving uh, aspect uh, that, you know, is forefront in your mind. Um, getting those NFIs, the non-food items, um, food items, <clears throat> creating last-mile logistics for those items. Um, and ensuring that they're distributed properly and um, uh, are uh, are effective and meaningful. But it's um, uh, the siloed approach, uh, as we've learned through uh, many, many decades of response, doesn't work. And by incorporating, <clears throat> by looking at um, where you want to be in six months or 12 months from now, from the onset, your, uh, what helps you in your uh, in your initial response, and the example of that is, um, no, you first have to understand and appreciate your environment. So those initial items that you're sending into the country are they only uh, a three month solution, a six month uh, solution, or can they be altered or adjusted to create a longer term solution that can gap fill the recovery and emergency. So, for example, if you're only looking at if you're looking at substandard uh, tents or tarpaulins that are not do not meet international standards, 
which these are, it is very well documented, what are the standards and minimum requirements for um, putting up a, or providing an NFI um, uh, toolkit, if you will. <clears throat> you can modify that to the environment so that the tools and the uh, items provided have a more lasting effect um, and are uh, acceptable to the environment. Uh, if you're looking at tropical environments, for example, you're not necessarily, the, the items you're going to bring in uh, are going to be different from a seasonal environment. Mm. So if you're going to bring in tents, you want to bring in seasonal tents that can accommodate uh, the adjustment in the environment in order to bridge to that transitional phase um, between recovery and long-term recovery. And uh, the industry looks at that um, you know, providing, uh, if you just look at the shelter sector, for example, immediate onset, short term, three to six months. Um, then you look at uh, transitional shelter, and then you look at permanent, semi-permanent um, shelters. Um, and as a humanitarian community, we, an emergency humanitarian community, we're looking at, uh, you know, step one and step two, that short term and medium term, uh, whereas the reconstruction um, is, in more developed countries, uh, you know, a problem of insurance companies or the, uh, an issue for the state to uh, address. Because at the end of the day, when you're looking at a widespread, wide, <clears throat> widespread disaster affecting uh, permanent shelters, the reconstruction of those shelters, there's no donor in the world that has that kind of money or will, and if they do, the political willingness to depart with that uh, those funds in order for the, each individual household to mm. be um, uh, reconstructed to pre-event um, uh, status. It just, it's just something that doesn't happen um, within the humanitarian community. Now, that's making a distinction between the um, inherent actors, uh, part of the host country, and external actors coming in. And the external actors, such as the UN or uh, INGOs that are out there, uh, will not be looking at the, um, uh, on, on an uh, independent level, looking at that full-scale reconstruction activity. They will make connections with the local communities and the local government to say, well, how can we uh, burden share uh, these recovery efforts? Um, how do we build back better? Um, how mm -hmm. do we use this? Uh, the destruction of these homes as an opportunity to re-examine standards, um, right. incorporate um, disaster risk reduction initiatives into the, uh, the rebuilding. Um, so there, in, in, we can advise on those, uh, those roles and uh, those standards um, that are out there, but ultimately, um, you know, it, uh, when you, stop looking from the lens of the uh, responders, but looking at the lens the, uh, as a individual affected by, or households affected by the disaster, they're really looking for an immediate, quick return to normalization. Mm. And um, depending on the heat of uh, the reconstruction response, <clears throat> a lot of those techniques, um, such as DRR techniques, uh, building back better, can evaporate in that heat of right. destruction. So getting back to your original question, when you're, uh, you, ideally you do not want to make a distinction between an, um, the first insertion 
to your ex, uh, exit point. Um, you want to be able to see a continuity between your entry into your exit. And if, for example, if you look at camp management and camp coordination, CCCM, uh, which is a global uh, cluster, um, you're, when you're starting a camp, you always want to look at your exit strategy. Um, camps being, of course, the last resort. You never want to put people in camps uh, you know, immediately. You want to look at what right. are the other options, such as host families, um, relocation, temporary relocation, while the sites are being prepared for um, more permanent construction activities. But it needs to be that exit strategy built into your uh, implementation plan. Um, the, the worst case scenario is providing that uh, injection of humanitarian assistance. And I've seen a lot of agencies do that. Um, pat themselves on the back and take off. Um, right. And they're using their own standards. They are using their own um, uh, vision uh, or um, direction that has been established by whatever organization or NGO. We'll just say NGO because it wouldn't be the UN um, that are coming in. Because I, I, in my career, I've called them rogue agents. Um, they want to do good but they're working right. inside the system. And they end up doing more harm than good in the mm. long run uh, to these individuals. And they set, they make lives for more coordinated efforts, such as the UN and um, the international community, because when they work outside the fringe, it can be, I can, uh, I'll, I'll agree with them, it's much easier and it's much quicker to go in, ignore the coordination meetings, ignore the standards that have been established by the local government in those meetings, um, work independently, make beneficiaries really, really happy, but then um, move out. And so then if there's any issues or concerns later on, it's uh, those who are staying longer, who are committed to a plan and a strategy that kind of have to clean right. those messes. Right. You mentioned... Um about thinking about um, the opportunities. And I know that in an emergency or a disaster, it's it's not the right thing to say, let's look on the bright side, but there are those opportunities that you can see like building houses in a more sustainable way or a safer way or establishing a school in a less dangerous environment, which comes from learning over time, knowledge that you develop, that subject matter expert um, knowledge that you have. So can you give us an idea of an experience that you've been in and some key learnings in a particular situation? A situation whereby, um, uh, sorry, could you just clarify that last bit at, uh, a second? Yeah, so give us an example of a, a disaster response you've been in where you've picked up some key learnings that have stuck oh, in your yes. mind. Yeah. Um, the key learning um, opportunities from from a disaster um it's hard to tether them apart because when you hindsight is always 2020 right and mm. um it, my me personally i have it in the mindset where the you're presented with a uh, a challenge um or a barrier or an obstacle and the way you approach that problem issue crisis in your own language and the own methodology and the mentality that you are bring to the table that is associated with your language mm. predicts an outcome. So if, for example, 
the, in Sri Lanka after the uh, tsunami, the Asian tsunami of 2004, um, the, uh, the Sri Lankan government saw the disaster as an opportunity. And the opportunity was that, well, pre-tsunami, there was a railway all the way, way around the coast of the, um, of the island. And there, then there was a sand beach on the other side and then the road uh, on the opposite side. And there were fishing huts and communities all established uh, throughout um, that, um, uh, throughout that uh, the railway line. Well, the railway line was completely destroyed and the Sri Lankan government decided, well, we're going to make uh, build a non uh, an exclusive zone from the railway to the to the beach to make it more touristy. For example, and bring more income um, post uh, when uh, once there was a recovery, um, uh, once the country had recovered from the disaster. Of course, that presented a lot of land right issues mm. to um, the international community, especially in the shelter um, reconstruction sector. Um, because you, um, you're not just looking at um, reconstructing of a home, but you're look, looking at who has the traditional land rights and um, either traditional or legal claim to that land. Um, and when those disasters occur, a lot of the documentation cannot be found for the individuals to prove right. that they've had they, uh, they, land was in their family for generations. Uh, and so, when you are presented with an um, uh, an opportunity like that, then it's not like okay, well, where what do we do and throw our uh, our hands up in the air? Then it's more community consultation, <clears throat> uh, with hand in hand with the local government, saying okay, well, here is your requirement, but here are the needs of the community, and so how do we look at uh, forward planning, uh, urban planning? Uh, land use rights to meet the needs of the beneficiaries, uh, as well as the uh, the standards of the uh, uh, of the host government, and then you can see um, uh, if there's a political will and the capital from the humanitarian community to build, or uh, yeah, to build up uh, and build back better with proper urban planning with utilities, a uh, pockets of uh, fishing communities that still have access uh, to their livelihoods, their main livelihoods, while maintaining um, the standards of the uh, local uh, government. So it's that all the challenges that are thrown at you need to be seen as opportunities for um, betterment. Um, with the, the always the the view of um, uh, ensuring that the beneficiary is um, at the heart of your uh, of your discussion and that those are positive outcomes to the beneficiaries and that ultimately in the end the humanitarian principle of do no harm right that's nice beneficiaries at the heart so just as we wrap up nelson um for those people who wish to work in the sector or the area that you work in which i classify as the sharp end of the stick out there what would you say would be some learnings or some um, qualifications or some experiences that people should build into into their practice before they come and join you? Flexibility. 
you need to be able to be flexible um, and take the environment as you find it. Um, there's a lot of people who, uh, and, and maybe uh, uh, you know, participants of your uh, of your class and uh, of your program, who do have exceptional experiences in their rightful field, um, or uh, you know, from a, a private sector, or um, from working abroad uh, with a humanitarian agency in the past. Um, I think one of the dangers is that people tend to bring those past experiences into their present and mm. say, and there's value to that. There's not, I'm not saying there's no value to that, but when you try to approach it as a cookie cutter kind of uh, approach where, well, we did this in um, Timbuktu, um, it surely it must be applicable to uh, mm -hmm. the environment uh, that we now find ourselves in. And I guess I would encourage most to have those keep those experiences in the back, always in the background. Never forget them. They're they're a part of you, and they're a part of your knowledge set and your skill base. But then be able to adapt them to your the environment in which you find yourself, um, and ensure that your uh, your approach, your um, uh, you know, from speaking with local communities uh, to beneficiaries to local governments. Um, that um, you're bringing that uh, that skill set to accommodate to their environment, and I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of uh, many many situations where you can really turn people off very very quickly um, by voicing. You, know, you imagine in an environment where there's a lot of stress, a lot of affected individuals. Mm -hmm. um, local government is very proud. You remember that they're in the um, their uh, their own country. Their sovereignty is still intact, but then to be able to say, well, we did this in this country and it worked there, so it must work here in this environment. It's a surefire way of setting off a lot of people um, right. uh, very, very quickly. That's really good. Look, Nelson, I do want to thank you for your time. Um, I just really appreciate that you have so much experience out there in the field and your willingness to share it. And I hope that um, there are many more opportunities for you to share with many other universities and trainers and organizations to make sure that people are well prepared for going into environment. So thank you so much for your time. No, I thank you. And I uh, would uh, appreciate uh, any opportunity there might be for uh, future dialogue or any particular issues or questions that uh, it may pop up in the future that uh, I might be able to uh, uh, provide some input or insight on. Wonderful. Thank you. Please don't go anywhere. So we're going to have a little chat after we wrap up. And for those of you that are watching the recording, maybe you're not already in our program and uh, you're catching us on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on YouTube and you're an emergency manager and like most emergency managers, you have your big binder full of courses and certificates that you've done and completed, but maybe there's not a really clear academic pathway for you to complete your degree, your first degree or your master's. That's why we exist. So uard.org or uard.ac.nz. And we've got our VA funding approved uh, for American veterans and military active service personnel as well. So really look forward to you reaching out to us so we can help you move your career forward. And once again, Nelson, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.